All of Spiked's articles and podcasts and essays are free, and we want to keep it that way. But to do so, we ask our loyal supporters, if they can afford it, to chip in, ideally with a regular donation. It might not sound like much, but donating as little as £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work. For less than the cost of about two copies of The Guardian these days, you can help Spikes become bigger and better and bolshier than ever. So if you like our work and want to support us, please do consider signing up. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the easing of the lockdown, the Electoral Commission's war on democracy and big tech censorship. The Prime Minister has outlined measures to start a very gradual easing of the lockdown in England. We must stay alert. We must continue to control the virus and save lives. We didn't get clarity. So Scotland's lockdown restrictions remain in place for now. Over the whole epidemic, even if we have no vaccine, a high proportion of people will not get this. At the weekend, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a gradual easing of the lockdown. The official slogan changed from stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, to stay alert, control the virus, save lives. In England, those who cannot work from home were encouraged to go to work. People are also allowed to go to the park for leisure and not just exercise. Many were confused about the new rules, and the devolved governments in Scotland and Wales added to this confusion by refusing to follow England's loosening of many of the restrictions. Ella, what are your initial thoughts on this quite tepid journey out of lockdown. (laughs) Yes, very tepid. I mean, the stay alert slogan is just hilarious because the idea that anyone's been particularly relaxed during this period is is a bit (laughs) weird. I mean, people have been paying attention to the virus and they have been relatively scared of it and wary of it. So that's, it's just a bit of a nonsense. I suppose it was Boris Johnson trying to signal that there has been a shift when actually, if you look at what the limited detail of this supposed easing of the lockdown has been, for most people, life will not have changed drastically at all, or or even Mm. a little bit. I mean, again, the idea that, you know, now we can go out for leisure rather than just exercise. I mean, we're not a nation of joggers. Most people were going out for leisurely walks and uh, behind closed doors were going to see their families in their back gardens and were making sensible, safe and socially distanced judgments and journeys all the time. So life hasn't really changed. But the thing that struck me is that we are supposedly now on this four or five step journey on what many people have laughed about, the kind of chart that looks like the Nando's heat chart (laughs) um, towards the new normal. And it's this suggestion that, you know, the end is in sight and all we have to do is sort of follow the rules that the government lays out to get to this new normal, which vaguely might resemble something like our old lives. And that promise that the lockdown's going to be eased is tempered with the fact that there's threats from MPs on all sides saying that if anything changes in terms of spikes in infection rates or deaths, that the lockdown will come crashing back again and even stricter and that we'll be locked back up again. So we're still living in this total limbo where you can't make any future plans. You can't think about what life is going to be like in the next week or the next month because we're basically 
beholden to the decisions of the government. And the problem with that is, is that we've had news out recently from the WHO and others that this virus may very well not be fixed by a vaccine and it may very well not go away. And actually, the reality of the new normal is that we might have to live with this, like HIV or other diseases and viruses. And that's just wildly different from the kind of narrative that we've had from the government so far, which is that the presence of coronavirus means death, means fear, means panic, means lock yourself away. You know, I think that we should be moving towards a situation in which we accept this level of uncertainty. And Frank Frady wrote an article about this for Spiked. You have to move towards accepting that the vast majority of us, young people, healthy people, are not going to be drastically affected in terms of health from this virus. And so we have to start getting used to the new normal being like the old normal in terms of our freedoms, but with the presence of this virus on a low level. And so it's it's a rather depressing picture because, it, in fact, nothing much has changed in terms of our ability to live pleasant lives and nothing much has changed in a progression towards a sort of sensible and adult assessment of what we need to be able to put up with and live with in order to get back to having a good quality of life. Tom? Well, of course, we've been talking all this week about, you know, the lockdown easing. But as Ella rightly says, I mean, it really hasn't eased at all. I mean, a lot of the things that we've been told are freedoms coming back to us on some small level, you know, being able to go out of your house more than once a day, uh, being able to sunbathe in the park. None of this was illegal in the first place. You know, someone should have told the police that, given the fact that they were out left, right and centre clearing anyone who was gathering, no matter how socially distanced they were. But really, other than a kind of few areas, you know, garden centres opening, who knew so many people hung out at garden centres, <laughs> as well as kind of laying out a kind of tentative plan for what might happen in the future if the R number, the rate of infections and et cetera, goes down. This is really just a difference in emphasis. It's quite clear that the government was quite surprised as to how effective the campaign of instilling a lot of fear in people was, so much so that you saw you know, only a fraction of the kids who could be in school actually showing up to school. Yeah. Um, you saw many businesses that could have carried on operating just shutting down. Um, and you saw people being very, very cautious about going outside full stop. And as we see in the opinion polls, they're seemingly wanting to keep it that way for some time yet. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to note as well that the, the goalposts have been completely moved on the question of the lockdown. Mm. When this was first brought in, the primary reason for it was to stop the NHS being overwhelmed. You know, that if you had a peak of infections that was too high, you know, you'd have beds full up, you'd have people having to decide who gets a bed, who lives or dies, all of the kind of horrendous imagery that we saw from some places in Italy. That has been achieved and yet the lockdown is carrying on and we're shifting into a position now where it's basically the means through which we're going to manage this for an indefinite period, potentially in the long term, potentially until we get a, a track and trace set up, sorted, although that's hit a lot of bumps in the road already. And I think we need to be very, very conscious of that. But then you contrast that with the hysterical reaction this was met with. You know, um, mm. you had the devolved administration saying, we're sticking to the original plan, this is reckless. You have many people on the left effectively suggesting that Boris Johnson and the Tories were just putting workers out to go and face their death. And I think it just really shows us how much of a kind of tricky position we're in because we've got a government which is very much wedded to the idea of lockdown, very fearful about um, not being seen to get ahead of public opinion, very worried about showing any leadership in this situation. And then you've got its critics and its opposition who have got such an extreme and hysterical level of threat in their mind, or at least are choosing to because it suits their purposes, that it's really you know worrying as to see how there'll be any room 
for manoeuvre in this full stop. And just finally, I think the thing that was really striking about the slogan change, and I mean, it is a ridiculous slogan. What does stay alert mean in relation to a virus? But nevertheless, it seemed like the response from many people was that if you even soften up the language a little bit, we're going to have chaos. You know, if you even suggest to people that maybe... Um, they can go out of their house more than once a day. People are just going to completely, you know, overinterpret the rules and suddenly be organising raves in the woods instantly. You know, and mm. I think that just really got to grips with as well. One component of this, particularly amongst the very pro-lockdown people, is that the reason they're so wedded to it as a policy, the reason stay at home is their favoured messaging, is because they really don't trust people to be able to make those judgment calls, to be able to negotiate the situation for themselves, to be able to take guidance rather than firm instruction. And that's something that we're really going to have to push back. On, I think, as we go forward. And some of the kind of fiercest reaction has come from teachers and the teachers' unions. Some primary schools are due to reopen for certain years in, in June. And a lot of people have said that this is unacceptable. There's no way that this can be proven safe. Ella, I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit about that. Look, the issue with schools is really difficult because I think it's unfair to say, as some have suggested, that teachers are just kind of being wusses and that they don't want to go back to work or they're shirking or they're being over afraid. I think what Tom said is true. You have to remember the government has ratcheted up the fear level for such a long time that it's not ridiculous for people to genuinely fear for their lives about this because that's what the messaging has been. Mm. On the other hand, there seems to be a real reluctance to dare I say it, use your common sense. I know that's a, a phrase that's like forbidden now to suggest that people need to use your common sense. It's like the equivalent of saying that you think people should just die from the virus. But especially in relation to schools, there's been some really quite upsetting images circulated from French nurseries of uh, squares marked out on the ground where uh, <laughs> kids that are sort of toddler age and up have to be forced to sit in to stay away from each other. And it's it's just impossible to make children do that. I mean, getting kids to sit in their seat when everything's fine is difficult enough, let alone when you're supposedly afraid that if they go within two meters of each other, they're going to pose a health risk to one another. And this is all happening at this time when there isn't any real credible evidence that allowing kids to come within two meters of each other is going to pose a huge health risk. It's really difficult for kids to transmit to one another in comparison to adults. It's actually more risky for teachers to be mixing in the staff room than it is for them to be swimming in amongst a class of 30 kids. But the problem here is this risk aversion, this refusal to accept that it might be possible for teachers and schools to take initiative and work out what needs to happen Yes, maybe take some risks, but basically prioritise the fact that it's a social good and a social necessity to get kids back into school. I mean, we can't underplay how serious it is to stop kids' education. It's it's scandalous. But the example of schools and teachers specifically kind of complaining and saying that they're being used as guinea pigs, that they're being thrown into the front line and have to sacrifice themselves in order to get kids back in school and perhaps risk getting coronavirus is that there's this sort of tension that's been brought out with this supposed easing of the lockdown, that a narrative's come out that says, as Tom says, the government is throwing workers at this, like a kind of cavalry, and all middle-class people who can sit at home and zoom into their meetings are fine. And there's been some awkward moments in terms of people drawing the comparison that you can hire a cleaner, but you can't go see your mum. <laughs> but the idea that this is some kind of manufactured assault almost like quasi-eugenic assault on a certain class in society is ridiculous. And it also is has a very patronising tone to it because 
it's more often than not middle-class commentators who are the fiercest critics of the easing of the lockdown. And it's also true that vast amount of working class people are or have already been back at work, are back at work and have been working throughout this virus. So mm. the issue of who is mm. feeling afraid of this is a difficult one because I think everyone is nervous. But if you're faced with the prospect of keeping life on hold, there is a certainty that this pause in normal life is hurting a certain section of society, working class people, harder than it is the ones who are most critical of lockdown. Yeah, and I, I don't recall any any fuss like the teachers have made coming from the you know shelf stackers at Sainsbury's. It just did. It just mm. didn't happen. Tom, your final thoughts on this? Well, I think we've talked a lot about how the critics of the government and the opposition clearly don't take people seriously in order to take this even very minimal easing of the lockdown. But I think the same can be said of the government at this point, you know, because really what it's doing and what it's starting to reckon with is the effectiveness of its use of the politics of fear, right? People have been so scared stiff from this. I think they've, it's been quite clear that they've been surprised by this. They're keeping a very close monitor on public opinion, don't want to be seen to get ahead of it. And I think part of that is the inability of them to treat the public like adults and actually to try and present the information. I thought it was interesting um, in Boris Johnson's address on Sunday night where he announced this alleged easing of the lockdown, where he referred to the figure that half a million people could have died if the lockdown wasn't taken, despite the fact that that was the worst, worst case scenario mm. in which we'd have done nothing. You know, it's a scare figure. It means absolutely nothing. To hear them repeat that, to see some of the things that Gavin Williams and the Education Secretary has come out with, really stressing the issue of safety, despite the fact, as Ella says, kids are very unlikely to ill with this is something like three kids under 14 in the UK have died of COVID and those are very unusual cases there's no evidence even of them being able to transmit it to adults scientists haven't been able to find it yet they still feel the need I think to play to some of our worst fears to play to worst case thinking because I think there is an element of that same prejudice which is that you can't push too far you can't have an open discussion with people about the relative threats because it will either scare people more or it will lead some people to make the wrong decisions and I think whatever really happens next I think we just got to demand that on all sides there is a much more grown-up discussion about this there is a much more grown-up discussion about the kinds of trade-offs that we might want to make and important in our minds and always front and center should be a belief in individuals to be able to make those decisions for themselves and to play much more of a part in putting society back on track whereas at the moment they've just been relegated to just being you know spectators of this entire process You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spike has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spike, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Ever since the EU referendum in 2016, those who lost the vote have sought to delegitimise it. The vote to leave was not only wrong, according to many Remainers, but criminal. The Electoral Commission investigated a number of claims of electoral fraud against the Leave campaign, but now most of those cases have fallen apart. Darren Grimes was one of the Commission's targets. It made three separate attempts to investigate him. At the end of last year, the charges were quashed in court, and last week, the police ended its investigation into him. Darren Grimes is joining us down the line to talk about this. Um, Darren, first off, can you tell us what were you accused of doing and 
you know, what actually happened. First of all, thank you very much for having me on because I do actually listen to the Spikes podcast and I really like it. So it's a, it's an honor. But if I go back to August 2016, that was when the first investigation happened. That was after BuzzFeed investigated. They looked at the spend and returns of all of the campaigns during the EU referendum. And they said, oh, hang on a minute. Vote Leave gave B Leave, my campaign, surplus funds. This can't be right. We've got the Leave movement. You know, we, we can say that it was dodgy money. So they reported this on their pages. That ended up in forcing an electoral commission investigation, although I doubt they had to force them very hard given what happened over the next four years. But they then opened an investigation basically looking at whether or not Believe was set up by Vote Leave. That was the accusation because the main allegation has been that it wasn't 17.4 million people that made an informed choice to vote to leave the European Union. It was dodgy data. It was dodgy money. It was the Russians. Every conspiracy theory that Carol Cadwalder from The Guardian could possibly put out there in her pages, that was what won the referendum and not legitimate campaigning and legitimate informed choices by the voters of this country. Just to explain a tiny bit quickly, what had you actually done that had made them cotton on to this? Well, nothing. I mean, I filed my spend and return I'd been given money by Vote Leave, their surplus funds, and they said, you know, do what you want with it. And which, which is a really important, crucial point, you know, had Vote Leave actually been micromanaging my campaign, then that would have obviously been illegal. But in a court case and a police investigation, there was no evidence of that whatsoever. It was just a useful narrative. They were told the Vote Leave so advice from the Electoral Commission who said you can donate to other campaigns. The key point in the law is that you cannot have joint campaigning in any of that expenditure, which Vote Leave and Be Leave absolutely did not. Because to be honest with you, during the referendum, I thought some of Vote Leave's messaging and campaigning was a bit naff. <laughs> I agree with that, uh, Tom. So Darren, I just wanted to ask you about what you think's gone wrong with the Electoral Commission. So you you said before that it acts like kind of judge, jury and executioner, and that's certainly how it seems to have panned out with you and the various other Leave campaigners who've been pursued by it. You know, there's been a number of big cases that have just fallen apart when challenged. So of course, you won your appeal. The Met has now closed its investigation. The Electoral Commission referred Aaron Banks and Leave.eu to the National Crime Agency. The NCA said no laws have been broken. And I vote Leave itself was fined. It just decided not to pursue the appeal. But largely, it seems because the costs were just exorbitant by that point. So there's just dodgy decision after dodgy decision. And yet, they established instantly in people's minds, or at least in the minds of the commentariat, that as Fraser was saying earlier, Leave campaign was criminal. And by the time the truth is established, you know, the narrative has kind of already been formed. So I guess you've had a kind of hellish crash course in how this particular quango works. What is it you think that has, has led it to make all of these kinds of decisions? Is it just clear cut bias? You know, what is it that has made it so dysfunctional and, and actually, you know, damaging to our democracy rather than supposedly upholding it? So after it investigated me, on two occasions, it came back for a third bite of the cherry after the, well, of Fox fame, Jolian Morm QC, judicially reviewed their second decision through the Good Law Project. I wouldn't quite call it the Good Law Project. For me, it's the Anti-Democracy Project. The Electoral Commission then opened a third decision in November of 2017. Now, to me, that would suggest that the Electoral Commission 
became part of the FBPE mob. It became part of the Remain campaign mob. And that is a really dangerous position for the so-called guardians of our democracy to find itself in. It wasn't so much policing elections so much as punishing leavers who have the temerity to win them. That was my deep concern and nothing that has happened since has assuaged those concerns. I think a good way of highlighting this would be to tell you a little story. The Quango tried to have me settle in court. So they realised that the court case wasn't going very well for them. And they'd acknowledged that I'm a young man of very limited financial means. I come from a council estate in the northeast of England, single parent family. And they put all of that in their notice, recognising that I basically don't have a pot to pee in. (laughs) To the extent where my mum had offered to sell her ex-council house in order to pay for legal fees. But they turned around and they said, right, we're willing to settle. And my legal team said, hang on, Darren, if they're willing to settle here, they've realised that they've made a massive mistake and that this court case is not going in their favour whatsoever. They'd offered to reduce the fine. They fined me the maximum fine of £20,000. They offered to reduce it to £5,000 and to acknowledge in a new report or a statement to the press that I am an honest person and never in any way, shape or form have given the Electoral Commission any indication to suggest otherwise. But I said, look, I've not got 50 quid, never mind 5,000 quid. And uh, you told them to go stuff it, basically. But that, to me, it goes to the very heart of the issue with the Electoral Commission as a regulator that, in my view, is completely out of control because the, they clearly recognised at that point that they'd done wrong. So a regulator that recognises it's done wrong, if it was truly independent, would at that point hold its hands up and say, look, we think the law around this needs to be clarified because we are the people put in charge of policing that law and even we can't get it right. But they didn't. They continue to pursue me. They spent what about half a million quid on that court case and God knows how much over the last four years pursuing me and various other Brexiteers. But it continued to pursue each of us in each of these cases when it had become crystal clear that when they'd clearly been getting legal advice from their very expensive legal teams, that they'd done wrong. Why didn't they hold up their hands at that point and admit that? That is, to me, is really, really wrong and quite a dangerous position. Dan, I'm nervous about conspiracies and conspiratorial thinking, not least because so much of it has been lobbied against Brexiteers. And you've mentioned the fact that anti-Brexit campaigners have argued that everyone from Russians to bots have influenced the vote. But putting conspiratorial thinking aside, in the context of the Supreme Court and what happened to you, MPs campaigning for a second referendum, the People's Vote campaign, every celebrity and influential person under the sun coming out and being anti-Brexit even after the vote. Do you think it's fair to call the Electoral Commission's pursuit of leavers like yourself part of an establishment stitch-up? After two investigations, if you've not found anything twice, it's highly doubtful that you're going to find anything a third time. But when they did open a third investigation, I asked them during an interview in which I was interviewed under caution. I've no idea under what authority because they're not the police. And I asked them what evidence were they relying on to justify opening a third investigation? They couldn't give me an answer. 
So yes, I, I think you're right to be cautious around conspiracy theories, but I, I'm afraid to say that on this one, I think it's absolutely the case. It's important to remember if we think about the firepower that the Remain campaign had, and I think that's why when I did my crowdfunding to pay for my legal fees, I raised about £94,500 on an average donation of 30 quid from thousands of people, which I'll always be forever grateful for, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to show up the Electoral Commission for what has been, I think, uh, well, one, severe incompetence, but two, severe bias from a supposedly independent regulator. But let's not forget that the Remain campaign had the full weight of the establishment, the Prime Minister, the Civil Service, the CBI, Goldman Sachs, the IMF, the EU, the President of the United States. But I was an easy target for people like Carol and her mad conspiracy theories. And they persuaded themselves that all of these Brexit organisations, Brexit campaign groups, from Leave.eu to Veterans for Britain to Be Leave to Vote Leave, that were all involved in some vast right-wing conspiracy that included everyone from Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, the Mercer family, uh, Vladimir Putin, and billionaire hedge fund owners that I'd never heard about in my life, you know, looking to profit from the chaos of the vote for Brexit. If the commission had spent more than two minutes looking at their reports, you know, they said I worked in London. They said I had an office in the Vote Leave office. I was a full-time student in Brighton. If this really is a quango just getting it wrong. Why did they not interview any of these people from Vote Leave to ask a simple question? Did Darren Grimes work in the Vote Leave office? Because they would have had from each of those 100 people the same response. No, but they didn't ask these questions. Basically, Ella, they reached the decision that they wanted to reach. And that's the conclusion I've come to over the past four years of hell that that quango put me through. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. The World Health Organization has declared an infodemic. It's concerned about the spread of fake news and misinformation online about the coronavirus. YouTube has promised to remove content that contradicts the WHO's guidelines. Some social media censorship has started to go beyond removing misinformation, which might be medically harmful, to censoring political content. Facebook recently removed event pages promoting anti-lockdown protests. Facebook and YouTube are also removing conspiracy theories about the virus, Tom, what are your thoughts on the infodemic? I think this is really, really alarming. And it's something that I think particularly in the UK has passed by a lot of discussion so far, which is how much kind of the big tech corporate censorship that we'd seen building up in recent years is really just being accelerated by this particular crisis as these social media companies come under more pressure, as they seem to be working more hand in glove with the authorities. You know, I mean, at the beginning of this crisis, Facebook was only really saying that in relation to misinformation, it would flag posts, it would refer people who share misinformation about coronavirus or conspiracy theories or whatever to reliable sources. And yet, as you say, a few weeks later, we find out that they've been working with state governments in California, New Jersey and Nebraska, finding out what their social distancing rules are and then effectively banning events pages for anti-lockdown protests if someone at Facebook decides that this is in contravention 
of the law. And this is really, really worrying. And I think especially when we're in a situation where huge numbers of people are under effective house arrest and the fact that the public square itself is largely off limits, the fact that the kind of online public square is also something which is being limited. And at the same time that these people in Silicon Valley are being able to kind of extend their reach into how people organise offline as well, I think is really, really concerning. And the thing that I think hasn't really been fully kind of appreciated at this point, and to some extent in the discussion of Silicon Valley censorship in general so far, is the fact that you do have this really dodgy relationship between officialdom and these companies. So you have, as you say, YouTube effectively deciding of its own volition, but probably under a lot of public pressure, to effectively enforce the orthodoxy Mm. of the World Health Organization in terms of what it will allow on its platforms, even to the extent that we saw this huge case a few weeks ago, where there were two doctors who ran a string of urgent care centres in California, put up a video of them discussing their own statistics from COVID-19 testing. They were arguing that the lockdown should be lifted. You know, this wasn't David Icke. This wasn't some obvious piece of misinformation. And this was pulled down. And I think what we've really got to be concerned about is in the immediate term is discussion of COVID-19 and the policies being pursued to tame it being completely limited by all this big tech censorship, which is very, very serious because we should all be involved in discussing that. And the internet becomes more important in a situation where you can't literally go out in the street and protest. But at the same time, making sure that at the end of all this, we still have something resembling a free internet because it does seem like all of those very dodgy trends that we saw starting to build up in Silicon Valley, it's taking on this role effectively as kind of arbiters of truth, as if anything just been accelerated by this crisis. And and of course, you know, there is no such thing as the the one single truth. There's not even such thing as the science. I mean, if you look at the WHO guidelines, those flip flop all over the place. You know, Mm. back in February, the WHO was saying that coronavirus could not be transmitted from human to human. It keeps changing its advice on masks. It goes from praising China's quite strict authoritarian lockdown, you know, earlier on in the crisis. And later on, it goes to praising Sweden's more hands off, socially distanced approach. So, the idea that even that is a you know a benchmark upon which to judge acceptable speech is is I think for the birds. Ella. Yeah, well even Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance who give us our daily updates in the British press conferences are very careful to always remind us that the science isn't settled or they use some kind of phrase like that, that people make mistakes, ideas change, viewpoints change, policies change, as we've seen with the easing of the lockdown. So the idea that there is an ultimate truth that should be adhered to and that the tech giants should be trusted to be the arbiters of that truth along with the state is ridiculous. And it, it's quite frightening, actually. I mean, the point that Tom raises about political protest is crucial. I mean, this is something that people died for, the right to protest and fought for. And under, you know, understandable circumstances, sure, because we're living in this bizarre period of lockdown and fear of a virus, our ability to protest has been wiped away completely. There's been a call out for a peaceful picnic protest in Scotland. And if anyone dares to do that against the lockdown in Scotland, they're going to get arrested by the police. They've already warned. And the same is happening online. If you even raise a question about the policy in your region, or as Tom says, mention maybe a slightly different viewpoint, you're under threat of being silent. So there is no outlet for us to protest. And, you know, you only have to ask the question, what happens when we start to doubt the government? What happens if the government, who is, it's not 
infallible. You know, Boris Johnson and Sage are not gods. What happens if they make the wrong decision? How do we change that? Do we not live in a democracy anymore? I mean, it's sounding slightly alarmist, but I think all these things are really frightening. And I mean, it's important to know that this hasn't just come out of thin air. Like the coronavirus pandemic is the perfect perfect opportunity for people who have been pro online censorship to collect all their arguments over the last few years and really hammer home this idea of you know what the WHO called an infodemic this idea that you know fake news and lies online and spin kills you know they've told us in the past that spreading images of skinny women in weight loss adverts kills young girls that fake news kills that right wing viewpoints kill, that radicalised religious content kills, and now, you know, off-message coronavirus points of view kills. And there's this perfect example. They've basically got their bogeyman. And of course, none of that's true because millions of people are tuning into the press conferences in the UK and probably the same as worldwide. People are, I'd say, more tuned in and switched on than they ever have been. The idea that you might watch one YouTube video that slightly is off message and suddenly turn into a 5G conspiracy nut and threaten the old people in your area by coughing near them is ridiculous. So that it's a really big problem. And I think it's getting underplayed because it's overshadowed by the frightening... Mm issue at hand of a pandemic. But as Tom says, these are changes that will be made and will be very hard to row back on. And that's the frightening thing. Just on that question of truth, you know, as well, is that I think the fact that you're even seeing these big tech firms moving into actually censoring conspiracy theorists is a really worrying development. You know, David Icke has been kicked off of Facebook and of YouTube, where previously he was able to talk his cobblers about all kinds of things relatively unmolested up until this point. I think people see that as almost like a less controversial example of it, but I actually think it's really worrying because up until this point, all of these companies were very nervous about booting these people off purely because they recognised that where previously they might feel comfortable limiting speech in relation to what's hateful or relation to what they might deem to be inciting, etc. That when you get into the territory of conspiracy theories, you are having an argument about what is and isn't true, even if what they're saying is nuts. And I think what we've really got to be careful of is the fact that, as Ella says, underneath all of this, we're basically creating a situation where Facebook, YouTube, all of these companies with the rubber stamp of officialdom can pronounce on what is true and punish those who dissent from it. And as Ella says, this isn't going to be li- limited to COVID-19 once all of this is over. The precedent will already been set by that point. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.